Welcome back to another episode of the Surprise Multiplayer Podcast. I am one of your hosts, John Ballon. In this episode, we start by talking about the recent closure of Jeremy's rock climbing gym and which dangerous hobbies your life insurance policy will cover if you meet your maker. Jeremy and I discussed the recent decision by HashiCorp to change the license of all of their open source projects to a much more restrictive business source license and what the implications of doing that will be on products and companies. I single-handedly have a product idea that will save HashiCorp's bottom line. At this point in our discussion, we transition to talking about the difficulty of selling open source software developers in the enterprise using a cloud identity access and management product as a focal point. Finally, we talk about Microsoft's amazing ability over the last 40 years to successfully pivot their core business. Originally starting with MS-DOS and the basic interpreter, Microsoft is now a powerhouse in desktop and server operating systems, productivity software, the Xbox gaming platform, and of course, a public cloud provider. Are they going to be able to continue that success with artificial intelligence? And will it potentially change the course in how we develop software? We cover a lot of ground in this episode, but a core theme throughout is understanding your market and building a sustainable software business in today's climate. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy the journey. So I heard your rock gym closed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, uh, I get the notification, I get the email, I'm like, oh, beta's telling me. Um, first, a little bit more backstory since we talked about this. Since I made the bold claim of saying I haven't missed but three days the last time we recorded this, how many times do you think I've made it since then? Probably zero. Zero. And, and I did make the bold claim the last time. Well, not the first episode, not the not the last recording. But I made the bold uh, claim that I was going to go and start the rock gym the next day. And how many, you know, do you think I actually did that? <laughs> no. <laughs> but holding each other accountable, you know, in some fashion, right? Exactly. Eventually, but look, I'll open with a few things. I, the, the original rock gym in D.C. when I first moved here about uh, 11 years ago. It actually closed and it was a, uh, it was a great gym, but uh, you know, for me, I believe that the, the, the gym industry itself is just oversaturated. You have your orange theory, you have uh, gold's gym, and then you have just local chains, at least in DC. That's what we have in right. addition to the ones that are just your conglomerates and it's already an oversaturated market. And in addition to that, it's a niche sport. I, in most of the United States, you're not going to find a rock climbing gym. You're going to find it in the metro areas where more people have lived different experiences and they've moved from, I don't know, somewhere where you can actually climb rocks outside. And they're like, we want to do this inside. Yeah. So this place opened up. Beta Rocks in Stanford. It was wonderful. It was huge. It was like seven tennis courts multiple wow. it's just ginormous and the pandemic destroyed them but as everything and people didn't just show back up that's what they said in their email i get it the problem they have with rock gyms is they're a niche of a niche like you said and the insurances has to be so insane i can't imagine how expensive it takes to cover insurance for a rock gym where literally you might help my, my life insurance says if I die while rock climbing, they're not going to cover it. I'm pretty so sure, you, sure that they're, that getting insurance on a rock gym is just as hard. Do you think that with, with life insurance, when they say rock climbing, they mean outdoor bouldering or top rope, like in an actual park or somewhere and not like gym workouts because it's inherently a lot safer. I would agree, but I guarantee you if they have to pay out a life insurance payment, they're going to come up with any darn reason within that paperwork to say no. That's their job. As much as I say it's horrible, but that's what they're going to do. Correct. Correct. And, you know, unfortunately, insurance is one of those bets that you're, you're betting that you're going to win the payout. Uh, your family, rather, yeah. will win the payout. And if, and there's no, there's no downside for them. Mm. Right. I so. mean, there isn't. I mean, for like rock climbing, 
No, they're going to, they're going to find a way of saying, no, you don't get that. Or they'll pay out a saw mat saying like, Hey, it's for whatever. Um, but they're not going to cover mine. But I, but like I said, I think I said this in text, I go, but if I'm on a commercial airline for work and I, and it dies there, that one, they'll pay out everything and then extra. The, at least when I apply for work, my company and most companies do have, mm -hmm. you know, work insurance. And honestly, thankfully I've never had a friend or a family member ever be in an accident like that but how, how does that even work does the does the company insurance pay first and then does your life insurance pay out or are they two separate policies there's two two separate policies and they're completely independent so like what i'm saying is is it's not that i wouldn't get i wouldn't get triple coverage like they said in fight club right. um but work one would probably pay out a significant more because they just want the family to be quiet they were flying for work move on they're, they're, they're looking to make that problem go away. Um, uh, but my insurance would just pay out its policy. And I designed that to make sure that my family is good to go for at least right. 20 years house, you know, all the things you do your house plus college plus living expensive for 10 years. Um, but yeah, but they're going to find every reason not to, um, I but, do it. but our friend, but what about, what if you die in a car wreck? That's more likely. And I go, this is an irrational game. This is them coming up rules from the late sixties and saying, those things are dangerous. That's a surprising thing for me, right? Because the list that we, we kind of went through and, and I'll pull it up and read it real quick because it was, it was quite surprising. Uh, again, there's probably an addendum or a policy or something that they, they reference uh, where it, there's additional things, but flying and assuming this is your friend Cessna and not commercial flights, yeah. scuba diving, motorsports. So does that include me commuting on my motorcycle or is it just if I'm racing around a track? Like one of the, like my dad did, uh, racing in Albuquerque, uh, and health life insurance, literally the second you say, oh, I'm doing racing or do any form of competitive racing. Literally they go, I can no longer talk to you. We have a different group to talk to you. And that they, makes sense. They handed it off because it's one of the most dangerous things you're going to do. That makes a lot of sense. I'm assuming the rest of, of them on this list, parachuting, canoeing, kayaking, hang gliding, paragliding, skydiving, base jumping, mountain or rock climbing, extreme biking, skateboarding, snowboarding, skiing, and surfing. That's obviously not, I mean, that's a very specific list, but it's definitely not an exhaustive list. Hell no. It's a very not exhaustive. And I'm going to put that there like extreme biking is all biking nowadays. Downhill mountain biking is pretty darn extreme. I know that probably when they came up with this list, it was bikes were not that extreme. You had a couple BMX things, but downhill mountain biking, they go 35 miles an hour and they are doing crazy shit. Um, skateboarding. Eh, I don't know why that's there except for head trauma because they don't wear uh, helmets, but, but skiing, I get it's dangerous, but really everybody skis or maybe that's the I've one. never skied before actually. Really? Yeah. And I lived in the Northeast my whole life. Um, Poconos Mountains were about three and a half hours away. Been to the Poconos several times. I've never skied. I've, I've snowboarded, uh, you know, but, and I'm not good at it, but I have never skied. I've surfed a little bit. Uh, I'm not good at it either. Sir, I, skiing is fun. I snowboard. Um, surfing is a weird feel, a sensation. Getting that up until you can get up consistently, it was just very weird for me. Um, but I just don't get why these, some of these ones are still on that list. I, I'm surprised that there is not a more general clause where basically it's anything that isn't some normal activity you're doing as part of life, because something like base jumping, I totally understand why yeah. base jumping is not covered by your policy. Um, so yeah. This is an interesting topic because I have very little experience insurance and I hate to say it, I have life insurance beyond the, beyond the, what's given to me by my employer. And it's one of those things that's on my backlog list of things to do. And it, it just do it. It's easy. It's too much. It's not, it's easy. It, the, wait, wait, pause. We'll come back to this because I want to, I'll chew you out uh, offline for this because it's such oh an easy thing to do. Um, it's really easy. Literally policy genius will get you good enough. You're young enough. You want to get it now. Well, it's super, super cheap per month because when you, if you do it, when you're 55, it's way more expensive per month. So it lock, it locks in at the age that you 
Be, so, okay. I, you that get makes the, sense. Well, it locks in at the age where, because you, you're expected to pay for 20 years until, until sure. it becomes a, a, value, a point where risk. But if you're 55, it's only got 10 years of value. So they have to charge a higher number per, to, per month to get to a point where they're comfortable taking the policy. Um, and a lot, there's a lot of interesting financial things you can do with a policy. Um, but where I, you can pay it out as at the end of your life. Yep. Yeah. So that's a, I, I, I did do a little bit of research and talk to someone. It just got to a point where I didn't know what to do and I put it in the backlog. Yeah. Well, that one's easy. Um, uh, the moving my house and family and all those assets into a trust, that is a nightmare. That is far more complicated than I thought it was going to be. That was actually something uh, our friend uh, had to do in order to purchase a property internationally. And I, again, something I've never had to do, put anything into a trust. And it wholly depends on not only where you're, uh, where you're, I guess, it's, is it a corporation? Um, uh, a trust is a trust. It's, there's, there's a couple of structures, but there's executors that control the trust. They're usually yourself, and then they have beneficiaries, and you have written rules. So it's functionally a corporation, except for that it it lives beyond the the beneficiaries. Um, so it allows your home to not have to go into probate. Even if you have a will, technically, you have to go in front of the courts and deal with probate court. <laughs> Hello. We have a guest in the background. Um, and, we have a guest. Um and you, this, it just removes all the chances of probate or anything like that, which you don't want to deal with. When you you got family members uh, that are dealing with trauma, dealing with the end of life situations, you want to make it so that everything's taken care of. And that is where trust comes in. It means that the house can't go into probate. It means that all the assets have already have a designated process to go through. You don't even got to talk to the court unless there's some disagreement and discretionary, but that's been solved years before. It's a wonderful way to do it. But it's a little expensive up front. Is it, I, I imagine we could probably go into a long discussion about this, but what originally made, made you kind of even think of that? Because it's something I wouldn't have thought about. And uh, I'm curious to know how your brain got there. Um, family members, lots of death, lots of that, that situation in family and dealing with watching, this has been years ago, watching how people behave after somebody mm -hmm. dies. Um, you'll be amazed in my experience, the cohesive person that holds a group together passes away. Nobody understands what they're going to, what's going to happen personality wise afterwards. Um, and it gets ugly, it gets nasty and it's, it's particularly in dysfunctional groups that, that there's one person that held everything together and they're gone. And then everybody just turns into the worst form of it. Um. And so I don't want that. I don't think it's going to happen to me because I think we have a pretty good feed and bead between me and my family and my kids. Um, but I don't want that to ever be a problem. So set it up now. Make sure there's no questions. Make sure my what we want will happen. And it just goes forward. It makes a lot of sense to do that. If after you get to a certain point when you when you want to make sure, especially nowadays where there are so many things that are that are happening with the markets and housing just in the last 20 years um it does make sense and and i will probably take your cue and pick your brain about it and i think we can talk a lot longer on this particular it's, topic but it's fun it's actually not like getting like be really really clear everything besides getting your deed into the trust is easy getting your deed into the trust is Actually, I think we're going to talk about this because, because I, uh, one of the things that I, uh, I was always considering was doing things like rental properties. Right. And I'm sure everyone at some point thinks, oh, I can, I can fix up a house after we watch it on HGTV and why don't I rent that out? Right. Um, but in order to do that, at least in my head to make sense, you would probably want to have that in an LLC or yep. something. Yes. Right. You want an LLC per property. So what happens if someone makes the mistake and doesn't do that initially? Like they buy it just between on their you can, own personal. The, you can move assets between these things. So like if you have an, a, a, so I have a trust and then I have an LLC and then I have different things within different LLCs sure. underneath that. Um, but the whole, whole advantage of this is 
those are still connected to me and through the trust and we still control them. So there's not like I'm hiding money. There's not, it's not a tax. I understand. No, I understand. Um, but it allows that those assets have a defined way of being handled if I'm not available. Um, and so the executor, and that means that there's no probate, there's no court yep. law, there's nobody involved in that process. Even if you have a will, you can still have to go for the probate court. So all that's just removed. So that's the advantage. Um, and of course, LLCs have their own benefits in case uh, a property defaults. You can insulate some of that. You can close it down. But then there's the controls and the rules you have to use within an LLC to make sure that they, they're in good standing within the state you're in. There's lots of little things you have to do. Right. Um, those are the more interesting parts. Um, get an accountant. Get a very good accountant. That's usually great advice whenever you want to do something like open a business. And luckily, there are a lot of good ones out there. Mm-hmm. You just need to know what you're looking for. And there's a lot of um, bad ones out there. Cause there are, there are a lot of bad ones out there and, and bad, you know, not what do you malicious mean? bad. No, just bad. Just like there's bad lawyers, there's bad accountants. Um, that would be an interesting person to bring on for a, a guest because they have such a unique perspective of the world. I actually have I a have, good. I've, I have a really good accountant that um, he's a coworker. So it might be a little, uh, I'll, I'll talk to him, but he, uh, he would be perfect to to do this with that we'll, we'll come back to that one because i think that would be that would be fun because it's such a different perspective in the professional world than we have what you what you said originally I, why i it triggered my thought about a, a house putting in an llc was that the deed was harder to get into a trust it, i don't understand it. why wouldn't it be just as easy as when you were putting it in your llc um i didn't do it paid somebody to do it because I was, you have to go get the deed, you have to, there's a whole bunch of process that was going on with the bank, who, who actually holds your mortgage, where it sits, all these things. They can't stop you from doing it, transferring it into your trust, but there's paperwork everywhere involved. There is the county standing with who owns the deed. You have to change the ownership of the formal deed from a, whoever's holding it wherever. I don't remember the whole process. It was far more complicated than I was willing to do on myself rather than pay somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's generally the case. Uh, sp- start, starting up an LLC is so goddamn simple now. Ink file. I, I, I love it. Uh, I use uh, Wyoming uh, agents. Ink file doesn't do Wyoming agents. Uh, I use because you need a, a you need a in in Delaware and in Wyoming you have to have an active a registered agent. agent. And so I like Wyoming because they absorb all the contact information into the to the agent for you. Oh. So my name's never not listed, um, anywhere besides with the state where it's required by law and they can't give it up in public information. They're only allowed to give the agent up for public mm. subpoenas. So even if you sue, I believe this is the case. Don't take it as true. Even if you sue, you can only get my registered agent, um, in that court case until you pierce, until there's a reason to pierce. Doesn't mean I'm not liable. But they don't get that information by, by. Well, th- that information, who, who's a registered agent and who, who, and the, who filed the paperwork of articles and corporation is generally available if you know how to query it from your state. Right. I mean, you can't just, sometimes you can just search the company name, but the company name isn't necessarily the name of the, the entity that owns it, whatever you're interacting with. Yep. But what you're saying is that it's basically a service, it's service that sits between you and the LLC, just like a domain registrar yep, would do. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And it cost me $15 more. D- totally worth it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they do it at scale in Delaware and Wyoming because the, there's some tax benefits. So why don't we talk a little bit about HashiCorp and I've been the watching. changes that were made uh, were the five days ago? From all for all of their products and the open source libraries on GitHub, the license was changed from a Mozilla public license, I believe. I believe to so. uh, a specific business open source license that is now extremely um, well. It pretty much gives HashiCorp the ability to deny any type of competition they want with. Their software. Yes. 
period, full stop. Well, I want to, uh, before we go to that, because that's the part I want to talk about, but first, I've been noticing a change in HashiCorp's presentation as a company for the last six months to a year. Um, and so you're seeing that the, they took, I'm guessing, I don't know the numbers, I'm sure they're available. They took a lot of money. They got, a, they got some way to get profitable. They have to show some income. And they have some unbelievably awesome products, but I don't think they're selling well. I don't. They're not selling well at all. I, I so I did look at their financials. I'm going to pull them up now, so I don't misrepresent anything. But I, before we talked about this, I did look at the financials, and I believe they haven't been in the black for at least the last two quarters. I don't know. So here's the thing. I've used HashiCorp product. I've met, I've met Mitchell several times. Yep. I've used his software since the Vagrant days. He is awesome. But ha but HashiCorp is no longer Mitchell Hashimoto. Yes, it is definitely. He does not, he's not there anymore. He if he if he is, it's in name only, and he's hanging out writing Zig all day, <laughs> which is awesome for him, man. Yeah, I, I don't fault him. He's done well. He needs HashiCorp his time. though. That this is, is they're doing this entirely to save their company from basically getting bought out by private equity or another, or another company. Yeah. The Dave McGann is the current CEO. I don't even know who that is, but they have an awesome product space. They just didn't have a good way of selling it. And the only product it's, I ever saw cost way too much money. Well, maybe, but the differentiator between what they gave in open source and what they were charging for enterprise was never big enough to justify that charge. That's yes. So, so when I say it costs too much money. I mean that when I'm, if I want to deploy Vault Enterprise in, in two, two regions or three regions in the world, it's, it's already north of a million dollars a year. It's crazy. I mean, but, but that's their only product they could sell. Cause that's the only product that got like, Hey, if I buy this, I get something really a good value proposition. I don't know what HashiCorp is doing. Terraform is literally could have been the easiest thing to sell. They could have turned that product into a multi-cloud orchestrate software, whatever you want to call it, but they never did. No, they never did. And it doesn't make sense. Terraform is the language by which people think about cloud. They do. That is absolutely true. And they it's unfortunate, but it's absolutely true. We'll get to the technical merits of that or not in a second. Not the technical merits. No, 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 no. The tech, the technology sound, I think it's unfortunate that th there isn't another way for people to think about infrastructure other than which modules they're using in you know, inside of HashiCorp. But continue. But I mean, how were they ever going to turn that into money? How were they ever going to turn that into money? I don't think they had a Terraform is a great product, a great tool, but it's not a great product to sell. And they could have very easily turned that into multiple billion dollar business. Great. What? Because I don't see it. I don't see why there was ever a big enough value proposition of selling something on top of Terraform as it was released in the open source versus what they could do as an enterprise product. I don't think you're thinking big enough. And well, let me give you an example. Perfect. Because what I would have done if I was leading that I was the GM for the Terraform enterprise or Terraform cloud business is I would have immediately started to take Terraform, the registry and the format in, uh, on the server side and start to sell it into enterprise businesses to deploy third party infrastructure and then start partnering with Red Hat and everyone who, uh, like Jira, I don't... Someone could then use, have a marketplace, click a button, and the Terraform does all the orchestration inside of your very VPC. easily. So what you're saying is, is that you, instead of keeping it generic, you allow for- Take the Amazon marketplace, yeah. and you're basically now do, spreading out multi-cloud, and then you want to charge even more money, you do it on-prem with Nomad. Right there, multiple billion dollar business. Oh. I don't know what the fuck they were doing. I, we can talk about Nomad because I agree with you, but that's coming back to a conversation from last week about the Kubernetes. Um, We're not going to talk about Kubernetes here again. But no, the, the no, point no. about Nomad was, is that you could, you have an orchestrator, you could have taken Nomad and then sold it per node for however much, it, and you would have now had a cross-channel sale 
and multiple. Here's the thing. I don't know what they were doing. And they took so much money. They, this is the part I'm not seeing is how could they have done that in the open source model? They were doing the work is what you were saying. Like you say, like, Hey, we're going to have modules that are from the, that you download and run that are, you have to pay for from whatever from Atlassian and those ones where you pay a license and it's for DevOps as a configuration. And you now, and you now became the entitlement engine for literally the fucking enterprise. Okay. No, that, that would have worked. <laughs> you would have killed I'm, so many I'm trying, companies. I, I'm trying and to built and, and basically built steam for the fucking enterprise. Yeah. Because, and not only that, you would actually get those companies that use that Terraform product space. That's they would be able to control the versions, what infrastructure was built against was, was back in. And, and they said, they're like, Hey, we, you don't have to, we don't get, you don't as a customer get to choose the on-premise database version. It comes with a Terraform. It gets configured Correct. into the cloud. And when we know that we can, when you upgrade, that it's a Terraform module upgrade that you can deploy next to, and it will do the entire upgrade part of that online, duplicate the databases, put them in the backup, the whole nine yards. And guarantee it works when you do Terraform plan, see what it's going to do. It's going to, oh, it's going to upgrade my database, but it knows how to do it. Now, do you want to know the most fucked up thing right now? I actually really like that. But there's a business there still. I know, right? Ex no, there isn't. What the most fucked up thing now is because of the license change, you can't build that business. You could. You just can't build it. No, no, you can. You just have to go back to the day before they fork. And then you have to fork the project from that point going forward. 100% yes, but you you now have a whole bunch of key features that you can't use because if someone actually wanted to buy or you wanted to buy the enterprise edition anyway the the point is that the point is that i don't understand what hashicorp was doing with all the money yeah. they took because they could have continued to build this open source software in the way that they were doing it for the last 8 to 10 years the way Mitchell was doing it and Ar Armin was doing it. And they could have built something that was entirely change the industry. And, and so what are they going to do now? They're going to stop everyone else from doing that. I, and I, they can't do it because un unfortunately I, I think HashiCorp is going to get bought like chef got bought and Salt got bought. I'm still I sitting don't... here contemplating how stupid I feel, not thinking of that idea. That's when I know the idea is good. Is, is I sit here and I go, what? I know, right? Because, yeah, they, they literally controlled the marketplace and the ability to uh, uh, they give access. Do. Wait, wait. They still do. They still do. So, access, listen, give access listen, to. I, yeah. I, if you want to pay me to build that, Jeremy and I were in, <laughs> but, but the point, the point is that I don't know what they were doing as a product team. And, and, and here's the thing. I don't think they were, I don't, I don't think anyone was sitting at the top thinking about how can I turn these things into a profitable business? Look at their financials. It, it proves it. I mean, they chased the only play thing that I ever saw them get market took a turn up in the sales market was vault. So they chased vault sales left, right, and center. That wasn't going to grow to a billion dollar business. And that's what they needed. Like that, that yeah. was, that's the observation I wanted to make was like, all I ever saw them chasing was vault, 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 because that's the only thing I think they had any market fit for. That was I, it. I, I think it, yeah, we just said this. I think that vault obviously was the thing. And I don't think it was necessarily the, the market. I think that. Vault came first, Terraform came later. If it was switched around, maybe we would not be having this conversation today. No, like I, I saw like the amount of times Vault failed to sell their enterprise license anywhere I was. They're like, why would we? It was just repeatedly, why would we buy a license? There's no features here. Why would we buy a license? Why would we buy a license? But you're right. It's not buying a license to the customers. It's selling, creating a marketplace. God damn it. I love that fucking idea. So. Why Let's talk you, about. Wait, wait, why didn't you ahead. tell me that idea through six years ago? Uh, 
listen, I, I think, I think, I, I'm you know, no, but, but I, I've worked in this space for a number of years and I, but on the enterprise side, building these tools to make engineering teams more productive. So uh, maybe it's because I've, I'm looking at this from an internal engineering, uh, corporate spec perspective. And I, now I know how hard it is to take your enterprise software and deploy it and maintain it in any way that is uniform. It's, it's, it's fucking impossible. It's brutal. Nothing like on print selling on-prem software is horribly hard. Oh my God. And I'll tell you, operating on-prem software is horribly hard. Oh yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. It really doesn't need to be. But uh, I, I thought, I, I, let, let me let me just go down the, the rant for a few minutes. Please. When, when you and I first met, it was the beginning of the DevOps revolution. It's when Vagrant was a new thing and it changed how everyone thought about building development environments on their desktops consistently and not wasting time managing tools every, every, I don't know, two or three weeks when a new package got released. And then it turned into a tool you were now able to deploy using cloud infrastructure so you could get semi-consistent environments the same way. But then Docker came around. And again, these things all grew up out of around that time. So no one really was thinking far enough ahead saying, okay, well, all these things are being built differently. How are you going to come in and when someone legitimately wants to deploy them, how are you going to come in and make sure that they can do it effectively? And the answer is no one did. And every single software provider that you, we want to put on-prem now tells you a different way how to install and operate their software. Oh yeah. Everyone. And they all want Red Hat as their base Linux OS. I'm not going to say anything more, but I don't that, know that the... I could rant about Red Hat for four episodes. I know. That's why I, I... This was... This was me poking the bear. I had fun with this. Come on. I'm looking at Terraform's product page. Um, I'm opening that. I, I have their finance financials up and for the last... Uh, I mean... One, two, three, four, five quarters. They've they've had a negative net income. So they have the products: Terraform Packer, Vault, Boundary, Boundary. Uh huh. Uh, console. I love console. Love it. I don't know why I'd ever pay for it. Uh, Nomad, Waypoint, and Vagrant. Waypoint. Waypoint actually, I. I was the, is the next evolution of where I think Vagrant needed to go. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about, yeah, you're right. So, so here's the problem. This reads like, unfortunately, no one ever talked to each other. Yep. There was no strategy. They just built stuff, which is they, awesome. And I, they listen, built, it's an engineering and they built amazing things. They, that's the thing. Each one of these, I'm boundary. I'm not sold on. I've tried it. it every one of these has I, real good merits of every but, single but, solution. But I, but, 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 but I agree with the boundary and, and, and I, and I also agree with waypoint, but they're, they're, they're at the beginning of their life cycle, yes. like in software development. Right. So everything that's been around is literally the, the leading. So console, mm -hmm. uh, Terraform vault packer, there, there, there aren't any uh, alternatives for the, except console, but all the other ones, there's, there's no alternatives. Mm. So they build amazing products. They, they just do. don't know how to build a product that makes money. They, so, <laughs> they're selling to developers. They're not selling to enterprise. They're not selling. Like, so I asked this question when I went and met them seven years ago. And I sat in a room with uh, our Armin. That's Armin? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, if we build great products and great engineering solutions, we don't need to have a sales pipeline. We don't need to know. And he yeah. literally said that to it. And I go like, but developers don't spend money. The, CTOs they, and developers are the two most cheapest people 
you're ever going to meet, but keep going. But yeah, the developers don't buy anything, do they? They never buy it. What they need is they need somebody in their organization that sees enough value in the product space or the delivery or time to value that is high enough. And I'm sorry, that's a horrible sales cycle. You're not, you're, you're like Docker. So change the game, how they change the game. They made it faster to ship and nobody gave a crap that it made life better for developers. They made it easier to get to prod. That's what people bought, even though they rarely paid for it. That was the value proposition. These things. Well, Docker's another company that doesn't know how to make money. No, not at all. Well, I mean, it's past everybody. Yeah. So Docker and those two companies, they don't know how to make money, but, but here's the thing. They've, they're amazing engineers, amazing. They they could build amazing products. Both of those two companies did build amazing products, but they never worked in an organization that buys those products. That's what you needed. You needed to hire a product person that was on the opposite side, buying those products. What can you get to, I'm using generic, I don't know, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. What will they buy? How do you sell to them? You should have bought, basically went and hired a CIO to be your product. Yeah. Somebody that's an old banker that knew how these things worked, make, had relationships. Um, But this is also something else I see constantly. I don't like products when I see them that are sold to developers only, unless they have a distinct advantage in there, or though I'll give you a company I do like that sells directly to developers because it's a religious cult following JetBrains. They're a great company. Yeah. But more importantly, people walk in, they go like, what do you mean? You're not going to pay for my IDE. It's like saying, I'm not going to pay for my computer. You're not going to pay me for my computer. Like I have to go buy a fucking windows computer. I've expected three things, a good IDE. A fucking computer that's powerful enough and not a whole bunch of security software to bother me the entire process. Sorry. I'm not going to go down that tangent. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. But what I will say is anything that, if there's anything we've learned is that the companies that make money are the ones that know how to sell into into companies. Sales is really important. Really, really important. Yes. I'm not saying I mean, sales it's the teeth. Lifeblood of, it's the, it, it's what feeds the whole company. Yes. And well, let, hold on a second. It's what's going to feed companies now before it was venture capitalists. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah. So, so this is, this is why it's getting hard is because these companies had a money spigot. That was so cheap that they used to raise all their money. But here's the, here's the, you, you needed to hire a product person that could have, that worked as a CIO, could have came in and said, we can make something awesome and you can keep building your engineering operations products the way you want to. And it's, it, I feel I'm worried because if HashiCorp is bought by Progress or some other private equity firm, it's just, they're, they're going to let it sit there and wither away. Uh, I don't know how to agree besides say I agree violently. Um, yeah, no, that's the, that was the root of the problem is you can't sell to these people, but they're this group selling to developers. They don't, they don't have the buying power, the decision making power outside of small companies. You're selling to, you're trying to sell to a bunch of people that when they use your product, 30 to 30% of them think that they can make it better. And so what you need to do, and you did it right, you created an awesome community around a lot of your products, but you need to first pay Yes. Uh, you're whispering it, but God damn it. Yes. Um, I, so I spent a lot. So one company I was at in the past, um, had a vault. I was a big proponent of it. It made so much sense for the developers to use it, but it literally broke the brain of management. They couldn't see the value because they're like, what do you mean? What do you, I don't understand. Show me how it's working. And I'm like, the goal of this is that you'll never see it. It's that this application code over here will be right and fixed and have a better design. And, but yet CyberArk comes in, bunch of pretty pictures. They know how to sell the enterprises. Guess what? Oh, well, we bought this other company, Conjure. We can do the DevSecOps things now. So here you go. 
guess what? The decision makers that spend money got exactly what they want, not the product that was valuable for the developers. Take two. <laughs> I would have sold vaults, built a product that basically just takes ITIL and turns it into a fucking programmatic interface with vault in the center of it. Because honestly, that's exactly what they ended up doing. Mm -hmm. They built, they built a tool that would allow you to implement ITIL in software, and then you could sell it and basically use ENY and PWC and basically start to automate SOC two and three reporting, sorry, two reporting. I think you could do. I'm sorry. Think about it. I think you could. If people trusted it was used large enough and completely and totally, yes. Um, that brings me to another new uh, uh, startups I've been seeing in the security space. That Have you seen the IAM as a service companies? I know that this is something that uh, is, a, is a necessary evil. I work in a large company. Yes, I've seen a few of them, but I I don't know any off the top of my head to talk to. Talk to about. I mean, they're 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 there is they're not going to make it. They all have the same problem. They're selling to developers or to security people, and their value is is like, hey, it's really hard. We'll make it easy. And I go, great. But what are you providing value towards the application? What are you doing that's going to make this product faster, better, or deliver more money in some way, shape, or form to the people that pay the bills? Uh, it's an entire segment of the population problem space that needs to be solved because IAM and AWS is a nightmare. It's extremely complicated to get right. There's so many if-else statements. It's really hard to do. These companies have value, but they're never going to sell. They're never going to sell anything. See, again, I you could take vaults and you can take that problem space and you could build a i mean you can really build a service where i am is honestly and necessary it is very difficult in a company right now if you have an operations team that has to manage identity across multiple cloud providers and there there's not an easy solution because identities are Inherently, they are difficult to um, merge together. Mm -hmm. And unless you start your the beginning of your um, usage of a service with an identity that's already tied back to some main system through OAuth yep. 2 or something, then you have a very difficult problem because now you have to do that conversion. And I've never seen a company that's been able to support that. So any single time I now have to integrate corporate identity services with um, products, it is a nightmare and they just don't work. I, I've, I've seen it done a couple times correctly, but it takes teams, not products. It takes a relentless focus on having a true source of identity truth. And then everything flows out of that. And it takes something we, we mean you will talk about over and over again, a dictator somewhere that will say no to everything but identity yeah. flowing from this one source of truth. And, so, I, and I actually think that it's not technology. I think it's corporate policy where people will sit there and say like, hey, this team isn't responsive. There's too many initiatives to bypass the important identity team to get your job done and get something rolled out um, is the actual problem. It's a process problem that people can't go fast, fast, and they don't have a standardized interface. So why do you think that a company like, or several companies like I am as a service, when that, the idea went that direction and not the direction that, that you and I see. Because they see a problem that is manifest because people didn't have keep control. And so when you don't have control, you're going to see like, oh, great. Somebody just found a really big stinking hole. How do I patch it? And they're selling vulnerability patching. They're selling, uh, uh, they're, they're putting their finger in the hole of the dam for a bunch of different weird holes and saying, no, I can solve that one problem. Um, but the problem is in true, like in the identity space is you do need a hard dictator at the top saying there is one source of truth. They, nobody gets a choice, but that team that runs that is going to be awesome. 
They're going to be efficient and they're going to work with everybody and they'll have standardized interfaces people can count on. They're going to be the uptime requirements are the most important and they need to be clear, concise, and ruthless in being a good executing team, particularly at the very large organizations. If you do that, you can have people that, hey, like, I know I can trust that. And by knowing I can trust that, you get them, people will integrate and it will go fast. But that's, that's the hard part. Um, like I said, putting your finger in the hole is not fixing the problem, but you'll pay, people will buy it a few times. People think they're finding a unique marketplace niche. Say like, hey, this problem's everywhere. No, it's just everywhere you've seen. Doesn't mean it has to be there. The problem is usually policy and process and people. I think that a lot of the founders of these startups of the, uh, that we're talking about right now, they came out of, in a setting where they're, they're most of the problems that I saw were with small companies. That's what they worked on. They worked in startups, they see ideas, and then they, they create their own, own startup legitimately. Um, but I don't think you see a lot of people coming out of enterprise software development and enterprise problems and then go oh, that way. I think it's a I think that is a, a completely an area where no product growth is really happening. It, it always starts with I'm a disagree. public. I actually think there is one really? company that does it and you're not going to like the answer. Microsoft. Is it Microsoft? Yeah. Because Microsoft has the scale and scope and they're like, we got all these customers everywhere. We're willing to solve some of those weirder problems and support them for 20 years. Trillion dollar company. Yes. Um, I, I, you know, you, you started off this tangent with saying that you don't think I'd like it. I actually think Microsoft is an amazing company. And I, uh, I you know, I, I, I think that the, it's amazing this there are very few companies you can see evolve like legitimately change their um north star of what what they're what they're building products about and, and where they're really going so i think you could apple's one microsoft is another google hell no no like no facebook they're trying to but it hasn't worked yet I, but I Microsoft want, has done it how five times we can go down that tangent five, five times. times and or more and despite everything the world you might not like Bill Gates you might not like Steve Ballmer you might not like anyone else at Microsoft but holy shit that is amazing mm -hmm. I want to be really clear I dislike Microsoft's products I dislike their non-dictatorship about moving forward so much that they support so much. And I get why they do. And I get why I dislike so much about them. And, but I respect them as a company unequivocally. They are ruthless. They are intelligent and they are willing to move and change when they're wrong. They make thousands of mistakes. I've never seen a company that can make so many goddamn massive, epic, Herculean mistakes and still be this successful because they take their mistakes and they fucking kill them, and move on. How many companies have been sued and called a monopoly and then said, yes, we're a monopoly. And then they fucking dunked it and said, fuck you. We're going to keep living on. I mean, like I said, impressive company. God damn it. Yeah. And, and they're more impressive now. Azure is, I have my, I, so there's so much I hate about Azure. Um, Microsoft's ability to write documentation is so bad. I really like literally, if I could fix one thing about that company is make sure that developers have to write documentation and sync I together know. before deploy. Then I would literally make me happy to deal with their products. I was secretly hoping that the purchase of GitHub was the beginning of changing some of that. It is. And, and it, it is. And, and it is because look at VS Code. It is fucking amazing. And, uh, but, but let's keep on this for a second because we can talk about VS Code. Um, I think 
I do think Microsoft is, is a great company, just like I think Apple is a great company, but they're great for different reasons. And there are very, in our industry where hasn't been around that long, there are very few companies that, that are honestly, they ain't going to go away anytime soon, but they're going to, but they're going to, those two, they're going to continue to change themselves. In, in, I don't know about Apple. In different Microsoft ways. Microsoft is. Microsoft, like Apple will eat its own products for dinner. I, they have shown it, but they focus on something so completely different than Microsoft that I don't even consider them in the same They're world. They're not competitors, really. They, they, they like were, they were a, years ago. A little bit, but they're really they not. They feud it. But they're not. They're not. And but like Microsoft makes so much more money off of uh, services and Azure and these than anything else. But the the focus Microsoft has in, in, in making bold moves, being wrong and fixing them, and then willing to just keep on trying until they figure out what the right move is, like like Azure. Azure's a great product. It's a dumpster it, fire it in many ways, many, many ways. There's many things I hate about it. It's it's anything and everything to everyone. Um, it sells like hotcakes. It doesn't seem like it's very stable. Um, it's going to print cash for them for the next 15 years. And goddamn Nadella with the chat GPT dunk. Oh yeah. That man is brilliant. Oh, the, that was, the, that was the best contract negotiation I think I've ever seen. He probably went home and you know how in movies, the end of a nice, you know, movie when the main character does something wholesome and then going back into their house, they just jump in the air and like shove their fists in the air and was like, fuck yeah. That's what he did after that night because God damn it. You're yeah. brilliant. 100%. Um, I don't know if it's going to be long-term meaningful, but it was a great coup d'etat for three to four years where he can sit there and be like, look, I was ahead of the game. I got this embedded. I was able to, I, amazing, amazing move. Why only three to four years? I don't think LLMs are going to, I think that the rate of change at Microsoft means that he's going to have to have another big win in two to three years, no matter what. And that next big win will probably have to be something drastically different than Azure because Azure is going to stop growing it's just consumed as much as it possibly can from the existing client base and they have to expand it new markets they have to grow they're they're a trillion so dollar company they have to keep on coming up with new things so you don't think that open ai does something different and they continue to focus only on llms no not yet i haven't seen anything mm -hmm. um i think they do some for the the value, OpenAI's value per person is staggering. Staggering of what they've done, what they're able to do. Completely impressive. Same thing with Anthropic. Awesome companies, but I don't, uh, I'm not seeing the secondary third order uh, product spaces coming out of these things. I haven't seen what they're going to do and turn these into real cash flow. I see Microsoft doing it. I see Google doing it because they have a user base to take advantage of and begin the upsell process. So I think it's been settled now that AI features is going to be around 24 to $34 as an upsell to enterprise users per month. That's a big upsell, but that's for Microsoft and that's going to be for Google, not for the uh, Anthropic. I, I'm not sure. So, so. I'm going, I'm coming at this from a product side. I don't know if you think Microsoft is going to have an upsell per user. They already have announced route? it. Really? Yes. So they're not going to bake it into the nope. directly into the product. They can't. Too, it's too expensive is what no, it is. No, no. Um, there's been a Microsoft. So here's my interpretation of it is okay. that, um, they, it, right now there is a pricing. Nobody knew how to price this. They didn't know what users would accept. Um, and. The first person to move was Microsoft, who said $24.99 as an upsell on E5s. Immediately thereafter, Google announced that they will be $36 upsell. So because they think BART is better, they were trying to reset themselves higher. What you're seeing is, is that the market's going to have to adjust to it. They're trying to find the price fit to the market. 
Yeah. Somebody had to set it and Microsoft set it. And now the, the value of AI features per users at the enterprise level is set at 20 to $30. I mean, 25 but, to $35. So, okay. Doesn't matter what it costs. It could cost $4 to add that feature set. They're all going to try to take as much capital per user as they possibly can. Cause you so they can to. put, right. Well, they have to, that's how they're going to put the next R and D. That's how they're going to get the, yeah. the time to do the next version. I get that. Plus it takes a I, lot of $36 per month to pay back $10 million. Yeah. But, but, but my worry is that instead it just becomes another interface that I'm basically I'm, I'm basically, instead of using Google, I'm going to be using this thing is what I see, is where I see it going. And I don't think that's the right way for the product. I think it needs to be embedded in things. Oh, it is. That's how much it's going to be for the E5 to be built into Outlook. So you're not going to get it in Excel. But are you paying? Unless you pay money. It, is that per, you need to pay every product is 30 whatever bucks? No, it's for the license per user. So, but, but wait, no, that's not what I'm asking. So. If I, if I have an E5 license and I'm, I have the $34 or, or whatever the price is per user, um, am I getting it in every product or only one product? Every product. I think that's worth it. That's why they think it, the price is, I, I, I don't, we, this is back to our original conversation. I don't in, in, in the current form. Um, I think there's potential there, but I haven't seen that next level to justify doubling the price of an E5 license. So let's, let's have a simple, do a simple math here. Mm -hmm. What I think $24 a month for, uh, one person is what is how much, sorry. I, I said do math and, and apparently the stupid the LM didn't do it. The LM didn't do it. <laughs> Twenty four nine a month times twelve. Hi, it's three hundred dollars a year. It's three hundred dollars a year. My daughter visited this time. No, that's all right. Out dogs. So three hundred dollars a year per person. So for three hundred dollars a year per person, for a hundred person company, it's thirty thousand dollars a year. Am I doing my math right? Yes. Okay. No, that's. Oh my God. Yes. I know. Yes. Yeah. So $30,000 a year. I think that bet it's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper to do that than to hire people. I think I'm going to make people more productive in, in five years. I, yes. I think that's worth it. I don't. I still, I, I still haven't gotten there. I still haven't seen the productivity in most people's work. Um, I think that I, I, I'm I gonna... don't think it exists right now, but I'm making a bet. It does not exist right now. At least I haven't seen it, but my bet is that in five years it will. And if I can, it, but in five years, I think that if it, if it starts to go the way I, I think it could go, that that price is going to be very different. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yes. If you start replacing people, like if you get people two yeah. x three x performance, but yeah. I don't think these things are going to give two x three x performance. I think that you're going to. I, I think that's the right way to talk about this. Is what do you think? Like the bet isn't how much it, what value is. Um, do you think you're going to get ten percent improvement, or do you think you're going to get a hundred percent improvement in five years? On the uh, average across the line, I'm going to say you're, and I'm going to make this average across the line. You're hundred percent correct. Yeah. That's what I'm I think. talking about. I'm, I think that for a very specific, for very specific industries that that bet is going to be extremely good. Yes. And I like, so I, here's how I'm going to break it down. Programmers, I'm going to get a full 50% productivity increase. Um, data analysis, 75%. Um, most general administrative functions, five to 10. At max. Are we talking five years? Yeah. I don't agree with that because I think, and let me, let, let me just say why I think that, I guess it depends because I think that Microsoft, if they do it the right way, they can start to automate a lot of back office administrative things 
like a workflow like what so like i like that's 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 the heart of the problem i think that we're disconnecting is is i'm not see like i'm maybe and this is a lack on me is i'm not seeing the multiplicity and speed output or or creative i'm just seeing people being able to produce things faster um and not just saying i the, see yeah, yeah. No, no, no 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 now that i think about it i i think i start seeing what you mean cuz like 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 i like you're just me, getting you're, you're just getting your current work done faster you're not you're not doing anything new, new. right and and the question comes is like i said programmers I see the productivity boost because I actually yeah. think, I think it's not in actually in the LLMs, what it's doing to write code for them. It's that they can write more code in like a, a, a communication. Factor. Yeah, you know, yeah. 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 No, you're right. And, and then, and well, well real quick, because I think that 50% has an opportunity to be depending on the company, depending on the software company you are, I think Microsoft that that fifty percent is probably two hundred and fifty percent internally. Oh yes. Oh, some because because they're fucking training a model on their whole code. Like I think that Microsoft, depending on what they do, they might they might like we might see the second coming of like Microsoft destroying software development. Um, like as a uh, think about it, right? I actually, let me, let me put this in more general terms. I think that AI is going to continue to expand the ability for very large organizations to take up market share because the larger you are, the bigger return on capital or return on yeah. investment in AI yeah. you will have. And so, well, and so this is going to be a continuation is your teams will get smaller, go from 10 to four people. They will still be as productive as 10, but you'll be able to have so many more teams interconnected because they can use standardized tools for code rollouts for integration components in very structured ways where they don't have to write the code. They'll get to the point where they review the code. They know the intent and they'll be in somebody like Microsoft. When you have a hundred thousand developers, I don't know the exact number, the economies of scale advantage of something like that is unbelievable because they're also building it on their own tools for themselves in their own scale. So if you're a CIO right now, a CIO that heads up engineering, you should be thinking about, I, if I, if I continue with my web developments and I don't, all the languages, all the software I build, it doesn't play in the Microsoft world nice, but what the hell is Microsoft going to do? If, if that they can do that themselves internally, and then can they start to say, well, for a company that builds software, build it like we do now, because we're 150 or 200% faster. Use our, use.net, start to do it the way we do it. No, more importantly is why would you ever pay anybody else besides us to build that? Right. And so now, so now, now that is a more, more interesting future for AI that I think is really important to talk about is there like, will there turn into monopolies of consumption of production of things because the economies of scale AIs give them means you have no choice, but to use them. Let's, let's call them clouds, the hyper clouds for development. Well, but, but I mean, depending on how dystopian you want to get, it could be, it could be, the, you know, these two companies are going to be the companies now that, you know, you almost need to, if you want to be a person that makes money in the future, building software, like, so do I, do I, I now need to, I, that we need to revisit that. I need to, I'm going to go, let me give you an idea of how important I think this idea is. I'm going to go write it down. Um, this is important. This I've never heard before. Somebody else. And I think it's potential to be very vital to understand, to predict the future. Is uh, in, in this one context of programming, will the scale effect mean that we yeah. have a reduction in comp competition? Because there's no other way that the capitalist system will end up. 
but in that kind of bottle. And I'm... I hope not. I hope not, but... <laughs> I don't know how to argue against it yet. Um, We didn't follow our agenda at all. No. <laughs> well, we I guess we checked a couple things off. But we got to a very good conclusion at the end. 